Well, good afternoon, everyone. This is Ben and Cynthia again, and welcome to week four of Nancy Guthrie's Seeing Jesus in Genesis. And all right, so this afternoon we are going to discuss the story of Noah and the flood found in Genesis 6 through 9. So what comes into your mind when you think about the flood? Well, honestly, you know what floods my mind? Oh, no. no, hold on, hold on, no, 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 no. You, the territory of bad dad jokes is my territory. You, it totally you, is. You're, you're, I'm raining on your. I'm raining on your. Oh, jeez, no, this has got to stop. The, the only way this marriage is going to work is if we have best. clearly defined roles, and you're encroaching. On, no, but no, no joke. All I think of is felt boards from like early nineties. I think like Sunday school. Mm, uh-huh. Yeah. So y'all, y'all who's were, with me? Who's out there? Huh, so y'all I'm had also. pretty regressive technology in your Sunday school. Our kids have it a lot cooler. I mean, they have some pretty <laughs> cool, cool stuff. So you don't think of like cute little pictures of a bearded man with all the animals and the cute little rainbow and nope. felt de- boards, felt boards and, and plastic Fisher Price yep. figurines uh-huh. Uh-huh. <laughs> with little plastic arcs. Well, hopefully, um, Hopefully at the end of this, there'll be different images in your mind because <laughs> our goal with this is to look at these stories throughout the Old Testament and see Jesus in them. So the goal is to get to Jesus, not felt boards. So let's <laughs> let's see if we can do it. This is so true. <laughs> All right. So as we begin, and so the story of the flood happens in Genesis 6 through 9, but we've just skipped chapters 4 and 5. Now, in chapter five, it's nothing but a genealogy. So you have that key line about these are the beginnings of the generations, and then you have all these names. Do you, mm-hmm. I'd be honest, when you're reading the Bible and you come to genealogies, do you just go like, boring, and skip <laughs> over them, or do you? Sometimes, yeah. yeah. I've learned that names matter, uh, uh-huh. but yes, I you often generally just skip, skip over. Yeah. Yeah. Well, actually, if you did that, you would be able to skip a pretty good chunk of the Bible because <laughs> it has a lot of genealogies in it all throughout Genesis or genealogies. And then things like Chronicles one through nine is nothing but genealogies. And then both. Pretty uh, much the Pentateuch is made <laughs> like There's a lot of them. Genealogies. Um, and Gospels, Matthew and Luke both start out with genealogies. So why, why does God spend so much time telling us people we don't know's name? Yeah, like I said, like names and family lines really matter in the Bible. Yeah. I mean, that's one of the keys that family matters. Uh, wait a second. Family Matters. Wasn't that wow, one of your wow, favorite wow. shows? Oh, man. Was, yeah, Steve yeah, Urkel. Yeah, yeah. One of my faves. Um, but fa- and so families matter. And one of the primary ways that the faith is passed on from generation to generation is through families and people's names matter. Like God cares about people's names. Even as he's building his kingdom in this kingdom, you're never just some nameless number uh, or barcode. Um, I've been reading back through the Lord of the Rings recently, and I was struck how the orcs, none of them have names. They just have numbers. They're all given mm. numbers, and that's not who we are. We're, we're named. Mm. And it's anchoring us into a historical reality mm. that this is the story. This is a real story of real redemption with real people in real places. Yeah. So, so reading through the genealogies, what are some things that we should notice? Well, um, there's depth there, um, but one of the key things here to notice is just notice the slow decline. So people, 
the punishment for sin is that once sin entered into the world, death comes, and it's a slow decline. The decline um, of lifespan. Yeah, the de- decline of lifespan. Um, so there can be a, a lot there, but look at chapter 5, verse 29, because this actually sets up one of the key themes for for the Noah account. Okay, so... Chapter 5, verse 28 and 29 says, When Lamech had lived 182 years, he fathered a son and called his name Noah, saying, Out of the ground that the Lord has cursed, this one shall bring us relief from our work and from the painful toil of our hands. All right. This is something people may not know about you, but you love names and you take names names very seriously. Actually, one of the first times I met you, you had like your top 10 (laughs) baby names in your purse. purse, And so that didn't scare me away. (laughs) But I knew once we weird, I knew once we had our own children that I would really have no say in the names. I just asked for veto power. But (laughs) you and you even are concerned about their construction, like the syllabic rhythm of yes the name had to rhyme with bailey or well, not rhyme had to go well with bailey yeah. but well, the meaning was really important to me yeah and i will say i think you've done a wonderful job in naming our children and in the bible the name represents um a number of things it represents the character the person it's always profound when the lord changes someone's name because it's it's their identity Mm -hmm. and so here we see lemek has named his son he's in essence poured all of his hopes into the name of the son Mm -hmm. and the hope is that uh who is going to bring us rest Mm -hmm. who's going to be the curse breaker and so we see here the, the meaning of Noah's name. So Noah's name means rest or comfort. But as we move into the story, it's kind of a weird beginning. We move into some awkward and messy stuff. So let us know about these Nephilim. Well, yes, so you have this strange like line about the, the sons of God in essence, sleeping with the daughters of man. And who who is that? And who are the Nephilim, the heroes of old? Um it is kind of strange and not necessarily central to the story, so we probably don't want to spend too much time on it. But in you know throughout history, there's been three basic interpretations of this passage. Uh, the first one is probably the most popular, but it goes back to the curse from Genesis 3, where we saw the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman. And so like Augustine, Calvin, Luther, um, this is kind of key to Augustine's uh, The City of God and The City of Man, that there's two, in essence, humanities. Um and what we see here is that the sons of God are part of Seth's line who were in the, the line of promise, but they abandoned that and went to the line of Cain and married. So they would see this as two human lines, the line of the promise mixing with the line of the of the curse. Mm-hmm. So that's one interpretation. Another interpretation is that the sons of God is ancient Near Eastern kings, and this is when they began to take on multiple wives and forming these harems. Um, that's one possibility. The third one is that the sons of God actually is uh, the fallen angels who have disguised themselves as like these godlike uh, men, and then they're crossing those boundaries. And this this is a window into Satan and his angelic hosts, like his angels that fell. Mm-hmm. Um, and that actually has pretty good support if you try and parallel it with Jude, Jude uh, verse 6 and 7. So, um, yeah, so if you asked, all right, what's going on here? I mean, <laughs> well, I, I don't know. <laughs> but what's really key here is that one of the key 
elements of sin all throughout Genesis is that God is establishing boundaries and then people are crossing the boundaries that he's established. Mm-hmm. And so that's why Jude actually parallels this passage with the Sodom and Gomorrah episode, because in that sin, um, divine boundaries are being crossed. So that's setting it up. But one of the things that this story is doing is setting up how in the world the world could get to into the condition that it's in. Mm-hmm. Like, how did it get to be so bleak and mm-hmm. so dark and so hopeless? Mm-hmm. So as we move through Genesis 6, we also come to another interesting part where it says that God regretted making man um unpack that a little bit for us. It's just, it's yeah, odd there, that it would say he regretted making yeah, man. I mean, there's a lots of things that can challenge us. And so I think one thing here that's important, um, again, not to get too hung up on, on the phraseology and what's going on. There's a theological concept that, uh, in essence, whenever God speaks, he's using anthropomorphic language. So, you know, you think the difference between God and us is so great. One of God's challenges is, all right, how do I communicate, you know, who I am to them? I mean, it's, it's like trying to teach nuclear physics to a cat. (laughs) I mean, cats don't know anything, much less nuclear. Like, how do you explain it? Sorry, cat lovers out there. There there are none. Let's be honest. (laughs) We're dog lovers. uh, Let's um, be honest. And so God uses anthropomorphic language, which means he's putting things into categories we can understand. So even Sunday, like we celebrated in Psalm 28 that the Lord is our rock. He's our rock, meaning he's our stability, he's our strength, Mm -hmm. he's our foundation. That doesn't mean he's made out of granite. (laughs) Or when we talk about that that we we shelter under the shadow of his wings, that doesn't mean we think he's a giant bird man. (laughs) So we're, we're, we're using... That mm-hmm. is its language. I think what Moses is doing here is putting it in language that we can understand. Mm-hmm. And we probably shouldn't get too far off thinking, well, you know, what does that mean? God is, you know, how could God regret? He's unchangeable. He's, you know, all of these things. I mean, all that's true, mm-hmm. but. I think it's pointing to, he's just so grieved that man's heart has become so wicked. It doesn't first love God. There's that broken relationship that he originally designed to be perfect and just to be in union with him, and now it's broken. So he's just grieving and regretting. Yeah, one of the key stings of sin is that the relationship is shattered. Separation Mm -hmm. has come. Mm -hmm. And so there is a grieving. Now, as we move through the story, one of the key ways that the Bible teaches is that it teaches through patterns and symbols. And so you want to start um, trying to develop the discipline of seeing the patterns and asking questions about, all right, what's being symbolized here? So here in chapter 6, there's a number of parallels or patterns that that is going to be picked up in Noah that um, were present in the creation of Adam. So let's kind of read the parallels. So mm-hmm. I, I'll read the Adam. Okay. You read the Noah. So like with Good. Adam in Genesis 1, it's, and God saw, or the first creation, and God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And then in Noah's day... The Lord saw wickedness. Yeah, he saw it was, it was nothing but wickedness. Mm-hmm. So it's been reversed. Mm-hmm. And then Genesis 1, and God said, let us make man in our image after our own likeness. Mm. And then in Genesis 6, he says, I will blot out man. And then God created the great sea creatures and every living creature that moves with which the waters swarm according to their kinds and every winged bird according to their kind. 
And then he blots them out. <laughs> Wipes them all out. So there's this reversal. Mm-hmm. As you're looking at this story, you know, why do you think God doesn't just wipe them out completely? Why not just wipe them all out and start over completely? Yeah, I think that's huge. Because uh, he's made a promise that he cannot break. God cannot and will not go back on his promise. Um, he won't frustrate his plan to bring the promised seed mm. who is Jesus. Mm. So and that promise was made mm-hmm. in the garden. So mm-hmm. after the sin that he was going to send, he will send the curse breaker who's going to break the curse and crush the head of the serpent. And their hope is that it's Noah. And, and ultimately it's not, but he can't completely wipe them out because he would then right. break his own word. Um, all right, so as we move into the actual you know, story, in one sense, verses 1 through 8, 9, 10 of chapter 6 are just setting the mm-hmm. stage. Um, so it sets a pretty dark picture. But then there are these rays of light. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Mm. These are the generations of Noah. So here's his story. He was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. He walked with God. Mm-hmm. And those are some of the three key characteristics of what it means to be faithful in any age. And one of the things we'll see is you you read through the Bible, so often what it does is it puts truth in seed form, and then it will either just put something in and then not explain it until later, or you'll slowly see it grow and develop. It's similar to the experience that I can have when I see pictures of our children. Like we, I can see pictures of them when they're one or two, and there's elements about them that now I say, oh, yes, that's them. I can see it, but I didn't really notice it then. It takes time for that mm-hmm. part of who they are to develop. Mm-hmm. And that's the way a lot of these concepts are. And one of the key ones here is just what it means to be righteous. Because mm-hmm. um, remember, who else walked with God? Adam walked with God until he sinned, and then Enoch walked with God. Now Noah walks with God, and then it said he's righteous. And the major theme of the Bible is how do the righteous live? What does it mean to be righteous? Your relationship is right with God, and that happens by faith. So even for Noah, the righteous live by faith. And in Genesis 15, it'll tell us that Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteous. Mm-hmm. So he was um, his righteousness came by faith. And same with Noah, his righteousness comes by faith. So what did he believe God? Um, well, he believed God when God told him to spend a hundred years building a boat and yeah. he couldn't see the rain. That was, that was a tremendous act of faith, but that's what the righteous do. They, um, trusting when you cannot see, you trust when you can't see you're believing his word. So, so as we move into the section of the story, we're kind of moving into like the second scene of what happens during the flood. So the second kind of major scene runs from Genesis six eleven through eight nineteen, And that's the actual, Blood narrative. That's the account. So we would encourage you to read through it, make some notes about what is intriguing to you, what strikes you. But let's kind of turn and continue after after the flood episode in at the end of eight and then the beginning of nine, it shifts where God establishes his covenant with Noah, which really is the key and the the point of the whole story. And again, you're gonna notice some parallels with Noah as in in essence the second Adam. God is renewing the, the covenant, the relationship he had with Adam. And so, you know, this is God's good world. It's been ruined by sin, and he's going to remake it. And so here we can see some of these parallels. I'll read the Adam part. You read Noah. So in 128, uh, for Adam and Eve, and God blessed them. 
And then God blessed Noah and his sons. And God told them, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. And they do. (laughs) Genesis 9 says to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. But it's interesting because man retains his dominion over the animals, but the animals are no longer his willing subjects. Hmm. And then in... Chapter 1 of Genesis, Behold, I've given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of the earth, and every tree with its seed and its fruit, and you shall have them for food. And then every living thing that lives shall be food for you in Noah's day. So there's clear parallels between Noah and Adam. So in some ways, Noah is a, a second Adam. Mm-hmm. And then, but Noah doesn't just, actually one of the reasons that's, both of these things are important that God establishes his covenant with Noah and mm-hmm. it's reiterating the covenant with Adam that these are creational covenants. Mm-hmm. So every human on the planet exists in relationship to God under the stipulations of this covenant. So like the creation mandate is given to all humans. The uh, gift of marriage is given to all humans. The prohibition against murder is given to all humans. So sometimes people, you know, will question and say, well, what's going to happen to people who've never heard the gospel? Like, how will they be saved or how will they, um, how will God judge them? Well, every human on the planet is under this, in essence, common grace covenant. Mm-hmm. So they will all have responsibilities to obey God according to this covenant with, with Adam and Noah. And so mm-hmm. it's reiterating that. So what we see here is this pattern that's developing that Noah, in essence, is a second Adam. So when we see Christ who comes on as the second Adam to renew and restore what, what, where Adam failed, that's not a new thing. There's been other people throughout salvation history. That's a pattern that the Lord has set. But Noah, not just looks, Noah doesn't just look back to Adam. He looks forward to Christ. Mm-hmm. So let's think about a couple of ways where Noah points us towards Christ. Let's first look at his name. <laughs> I love names so much. <laughs> you want to start with the name? That, that's yeah. that's a good place to start. So Noah's <laughs> Noah's name means rest, and so um, one of the most powerful and beautiful promises in the Gospels is in Matthew 11, where Jesus stands up and says, "Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon your uh, upon you and learn from me, from gentle and humble in heart. And so Jesus stands up and promises that He is the true and ultimate rest giver. And so what He's doing, He's tapping in into the hope that goes all the way back to Genesis chapter five. Like, is there someone who can break? You know, the the three areas of the curse. Uh, is there someone who can break the curse on the earth and bring us rest? And He's standing and boldly saying, "Yes, I'm the one." I'm I'm the curse breaker. And then there's attributes of Noah that are just directly correlating to Christ and how he found favor in the eyes of the Lord, how he was a righteous man. He was blameless and walked with God. All of those just so directly point to who Christ is and was. Yeah, the gospel writers very intentionally use that language to parallel uh, Christ as well. Mm -hmm. And another key thing about Noah is he begins to introduce us to one of the key, um, dynamics of salvation. Cause one of the key dynamics is that it is through the righteousness of the one that the many are saved. Mm -hmm. And so it's through the righteousness of the one that his whole family is then 
saved. Mm -hmm. And so that ultimately finds its fulfillment in Christ. It is through his righteousness of the one that the many can be saved. That's why it's so important to be a part of Christ's family, because mm -hmm. it's his family that he saves. Mm -hmm. And the way we're in his family now is be born again, born into his family. Hmm. Now let's look at the, the ark. How does that point to Christ? Well, if you think about what the ark is, I mean, the ark is God's divine provision for salvation. It's the refuge. It's the place where they can go and hide and not experience judgment. I so, love that. I mean, you could, par you could paraphrase this story that God so loved Noah that he gave an ark <laughs> that if he just enters in, he won't perish, mm -hmm. but he'll find life. Mm. And so Christ is the ark. Christ is the one we we enter um, to find salvation. And the first one, time I heard that, that just blew my mind, just those correlations, just how every aspect of the story really does point to Christ. It's just so powerful to me. Yeah, it's beautiful. And this is the reason why the ark was one of the most popular pictures for the salvation we have in the early church. So one of the most popular images that the church would use actually for the church in the first eight centuries was the ark. They would say the ark, the church, this is Christ's body on earth, and this is where you must run to to find salvation and to uh, find refuge. And so it paints it not just a beautiful picture of Christ, but a beautiful picture of his church, like where mm -hmm. we find refuge and where we find shelter in our mm -hmm. salvation to be, to be in the ark. So in thinking about symbols and what they point to, let's go to the bow. Because that's probably the most famous. I mean, the rainbow is probably the most famous <laughs> symbol on this story. So what is the, what's the rainbow all about? What is the Lord symbolizing there? And I think one of the key here is when you think of bow, so don't think giant hair bows or <laughs> don't think decorating girls. So when you think of bow, you're thinking of archery, bow and arrow. Weapon. Weapon. Do you have a lot of experience with bows and arrows? <laughs> no. Tell us yours, though. Well, well, I want you to I'll have brag you a little bit. I'll have you know <laughs> that I was the fifth grade archery champion at Camp Windshape. Thank you very much. Boom. <laughs> so I have a little expertise in the art of archery. And so the image is the God's bow, and the bow is a weapon. It's, it's used for war. So a couple of texts that are helpful to bring out what's going on here. Um, read for Psalm 7. Okay. Psalm 7, 12 through 13 says, If a man does not repent, God will wet his sword. He has bent and readied his bow. He has prepared for him his deadly weapons making his arrows fiery shafts. So it's talking about the Lord. He's going to execute his judgment. And when he's ready, his bow is bent and the fiery arrows are in place, ready to be loosed. Uh, Lamentations 2.4. It says that he has bent his bow like an enemy. With his right hand set like a foe, he has poured out his fury like fire. So fire's coming. The bow is a weapon of judgment, of siege, executing the Lord's judgment. And then Zechariah 9. Then the Lord will appear over them, and his arrow will go forth like lightning. So the Lord appears, and he unleashes his arrow, and it's like lightning. It come, The arrows come down 
from the sky. And then it says in Genesis 9, 13, that the Lord has set his bow in the clouds, but this is his war bow, his instrument of executing justice. Mm-hmm. It's a war bow that's being set in the clouds, an instrument of judgment. But notice how is the bow turned? It's it, it's the image of a drawn bow. It's drawn. Mm-hmm. But if there was an arrow in the bow, which way is it pointing now? Towards heaven. It's pointing up. So what what's the symbolism there? This this instrument of justice. Now, justice has just fallen down upon the earth from the Lord. And then mm-hmm. the promise that you are to remember every time you see the bow is now the instrument of justice. The next time he unleashes his justice, what direction is it going to go? Mm, to him. It's going to him. That is amazing. I've never seen that before. It's beautiful. Like justice is coming. He so the next time, uh, just judgment comes. It's not coming down from him. It's coming upon him. Mm. He's going to bear it. Mm. That's powerful. It's beautiful. It's part of the symbolism of the cross. And on the cross, Christ bore the judgment. So now, when you see the rainbow, the symbolism is so much deeper mm. than just you know. Uh, kids room decoration. Mm -hmm. The symbolism is the promise from the Lord Mm -hmm. that he's going to bear judgment. Mm -hmm. He's going to bear it for us. And that's the hope of the gospel. That's the Mm -hmm. beauty and the power of, of the cross. Mm -hmm. So the rainbow is beautiful, but it's beautiful in such a profound, deeper way than we can, we can even imagine. Mm -hmm. So, so hopefully now when you think of the flood and think of Noah and think of rainbows, more will pop into your mind than just felt boards (laughs) or bad dad jokes. (laughs) Definitely. Thanks for listening, guys. Thanks for joining us in our discussion on Noah and the flood coming from Genesis 6 through 9. Happy studying this week. Hope you have a great week.